0: Pirates versus Tyrants. This is the Tom Wren Show where we practice piracy on the enemies of freedom and liberty. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. We are excited to be here today. Uh, you know, this is actually probably one of the more important shows that we've done in quite some time. I think this is a crucial thing. So, today we're going to have a conversation. Uh, We brought Ken McCarthy back, uh, who's done a book on what the nurses saw during the COVID pandemic. And a lot of people, a lot of people, myself included, lost loved ones during COVID. A lot of people died uh, that that didn't need to. They were murdered in the hospitals. Uh, The hospital protocols were absolutely horrific. And uh, it, it just, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Well, no one knows better what occurred than the nurses. The nurses were there. They were, and so we've got a we've got uh, two wonderful, wonderful nurse heroes who have been fighting and speaking out about this ever since. Right, uh, Nurse Aaron and and Kimberly Overton have both been absolutely outspoken in this. They've been fighting. They've been fighting like hell. This is really, really important. Uh, is our elected officials do everything they can to move on, and to not do anything to provide accountability. If we forget about the people who were murdered, if we forget about what occurred, it's gonna happen again. And I'm gonna tell you as an attorney, the laws that allowed this to happen before are still in place. And unless we do something about it, they're gonna be in place when disease X hits, which you know we're all hearing about nonstop, it's coming. Uh, so we have to do something about this and we have to ensure accountability. So I wanna jump right in on this and let me, uh, let me introduce everybody. Um, we have with us, as I said, Ken McCarthy, author, uh, he did the What Nurses Saw book. i got Nurse Aaron, who, is, well, if you know anything about this, you've heard of Nurse Aaron and, and Kimberly Overton, who, same, uh, again, these two have been warriors, they've been fighting, they've been speaking out on this, and, uh, you know, frankly, I've admired their work for a long time. This has been a real tough thing to do for the nurses. And you know Ken, of course, did a great job of bringing everybody together. So I appreciate y'all being here.
1: Thanks for having
2: us. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it.
0: All right. So last time we had Ken on, you know, we talked about his book, What Nurses Saw. And uh, you know, just as a quick rehash, Ken, tell us a little bit about that book and and what prompted you to do it.
3: Well, I remember when uh, Aaron. Uh, came out about the story through a colleague of hers, and then she was on quite a few podcasts. Uh, she had footage, she, not not just to her memories, but actual footage of some of the things that went on. And I waited for some journalist or some big news media organization or some government agency to say, whoa, what, what's this? We better get into it. Uh, and I waited and waited and waited, and it got to be the summer of uh, 2023, and I realized nobody's gonna do anything. So the story's gotten out piecemeal. For instance, Erin's put out her story. Other nurses put out their stories. Kimberly put out her story. Uh, We have some stories of family survivors. uh, And it could accidentally give the impression that this was sort of a one-off, one bad hospital, one bad situation. But what I came to understand as I interviewed more and more and more nurses is this was system-wide. Uh, throughout the entire United States, throughout Canada, in the UK. Uh, And so I just put all the stories in in between the covers of a book. I added some appendix material, some information about remdesivir. Uh, A.J. Dupree's contributed an amazing bit of forensic accounting on all the various financial incentives that hospitals were given to carry out this death protocol, really, is what what we need to call it. And that's my part. And, uh, you know, here's the book. Here's what it looks like. And it's thick. Um, the guy that's helping me was helping with the book. He said, "You know, Ken, we're we're getting up to 500 pages here. Uh, are you going to stop at some point?" And I realized, "Oh my God, this mm-hmm. thing could have easily be an encyclopedia if if it yeah. were to be done correctly." So that's that's my all. I have to say, I think we should pay attention to our guests, our nurses. Uh, three things I want people to focus on: what they saw, and then what I learned from doing the book, what they went through. The, the retaliation, the iron fist enforcement, when they try yep. to speak up and save their patients, and then the third thing, and I hope we'll have a chance to talk about that, the positive things they are now doing, they and many other nurses are doing, uh, to to right the world, to make the situation better for all of us.
0: Well, absolutely, and uh, you know, I want to I want to point to one thing that you talked about there, right? So, this was coordinated. Okay, this was coordinated, coordinated nationally. Now, uh, Kim and Aaron are in different, different hospitals, they're they're, they're from different locations, but yet the protocols, identical. This was coordinated on a national level. And by the way, we can show that it was well known that a lot of the the things that were added into these protocols, were things that that Bauchi and and the FDA and the CDC all these guys they knew all the issues that ventilators cause there's tons of industry guidance about it and we'll get to the, we'll talk to the nurses about that i mean you ladies i'm sure you probably had training at some point talking about you know you know we don't we don't ventilators are not great until covid came and now everybody wants a vent but you know there were all sorts of things that were done but before we get that, let's just go. So Aaron, you were you were one of the first people, one of the first nurses to really kind of blow this up on a broad scale. And I remember because when you did that, it, you know, it was early on in some of my litigation in this. And I remember how lonely I felt and how hard it was to find any doctors or nurses who would say anything. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly I got this uh, this nurse who's dropping video all over the place and this sort of stuff. <laughs> And man, I wanted to throw a party because I was like, "Man, finally someone's yeah. what, showing what I'm seeing." So, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, that actually gave me chills. I haven't thought about that for a while. I mean, we were kind of by ourselves for yeah. a long time. Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, I'm from. I'm, I live in Florida, and even at the the very beginning of this, you know, I think like even a lot of people were sick in like December 2019. Yeah. You know, just. Working. I remember picking up a ton of shifts for people and then all of a sudden, you know, started bringing, you know, a lot of travel nurses and it, it became, I don't know, it was, it was just, I think they purposely made it very confusing, you know, for those of us on the inside too, you know, like, we don't know what's going on, but if you step back and kind of look at it, it was, you know, it was all part of, you know, the, the fear-induced plot, uh, psychological operation that they use. And it, I think that it wasn't just national, it was global. Because um, there's nurses was. from all over, you know, uh, the world that have the same exact stories. But, you know, right around March 2020, I remember the respiratory therapist, this is in my Florida hospital, you know, was to train us all how to use a vent, like every single person in the hospital, even like the cooks. And I remember having a conversation with him, like, what the heck is like, since when are, since when do we do this? You know, for anything restful, like it it was just really bizarre and he agreed and, you know, kind of people just kind of sat back and like, all right, this is what we got to do. But, you know, even at that point, it just kind of felt like that sick feeling in my stomach. And then, you know, then the travel nurses came and they were furloughing all the staff. And that's when I took a travel uh, position to new york and i guess that's kind of like where my story began after what i i witnessed you know at the what they call it the epicenter of the epicenter and uh you know it was a war zone uh but i i've been to to actual war i was in the military and um it was a def definitely a different a different war but it wasn't the war that the media was portraying it was a war against our patients and literally human beings uh, in general.
0: So so what, what specifically, you know, when you talk about this, and of course, you know, I know some of these stories, but I want people to hear. Mm-hmm. Give me an example, give me an example of a horror story, something that touched your heart that, that you know, I, and I know that's, that's hard to think about, but mm. it's crucial that the people listening and watching know that, you know, some of us who have been fighting through this, we live the pain with you guys we're not going to quit fighting this until there's justice. We lived it too. So uh, if you want to give people an example, let's talk about how, how great this was, because they were trying to hold out the response in New York like it was some sort of heroism, but they weren't exactly treating these people with respect and love, were they?
1: No. You know, I when I first got assigned to Elmhurst, and that's in Queens, and that was like actually the epicenter of the epicenter hospital. And um, you ever feel like you're kind of like moving in slow motion and you're kind of looking around like, how am I, am I the crazy one? Because everybody is going along with it. And I can't even explain like the feelings that I even feel like to this day talking about it. And now we're what, in 2024. But all I, all I could think about is every single person that walked through those emergency room doors was never going to see their family again and their family was never going to see them and they were going to end up in the freezer truck outside. Every single person, when you walk through those emergency room doors, you were, that was your, that you were signing your death certificate at that point and everybody knew it. And what's, was hard is I was assigned to the ICU, uh, at Elmhurst, but I have by trade, I'm an ER nurse. And so, I floated over there a couple times and like their protocol essentially was just to dose them up with sedatives. And we all know that that is a respiratory depressant. So you're gonna suppress their respiratory system with respiratory issues. Ultimately what they wanted to do is just kind of make it so that they could put them on a vent. So I, from the beginning, I've kind of called it like an assembly line to a body bag. You know, you walk through the door You get dosed with sedatives you get shipped up to the icu you get put on a ventilator most of the staff has no intention of going into your room uh there was patients with feces dried up their backs for two three weeks i mean they had the iv poles outside of the rooms they were lying to the family members on on the phone about like literally everything all of the treatment um like as a nurse like i couldn't advocate for any of my patients or they were, you know, they were threatened to be sent home. So it's like, what do you do? You know, and this was within the first couple days that I was there, I was like, I'm either going home or I'm gonna try to figure something out and expose this because this is like a mass genocide and I don't want to be a part of it. And I don't think I can sleep at night if I do stay silent. You know, I don't care How much money i'm getting paid we're getting paid ten thousand dollars a week they can shove it you know like that hush money is essentially what it was um it wasn't going to keep everyone quiet but or so i thought um because when i my story came out i was literally one of the only ones and the actually the only one in the entire world that had actual video evidence so the pushback for me by the government and actually my own colleagues was incredibly difficult to like push through. Um, but I knew that that was what they wanted to do is like silence me, right? So
0: so, so just to be clear, and I wanna rehash a couple of these things and then I'll let you let you finish here. Aaron is a nurse. One of the primary jobs a nurse has is to advocate for the patients. It is the number one job. The nurse, nurse in today's medical system, is the patient advocate. The nurses were told they couldn't interact with the patients. They'd die if they got close. That uh, you know that these patients were were you know this that and other. These patients were left in their beds, covered in poo, covered in urine, bed sores, infections. All of these horrible—they were dying worse than the way people die in the third world. Mm. They weren't dying from COVID. They were put on depressants, and this is something that's happened ever since and still happens. When you go in for COVID, they put you on depressants that that slow your respiration, so your O2 levels go down, which gives them the opportunity to say that we need to put you on CPAP or forced air of some type. They crank that CPAP so high that it causes damage to your lungs, and they continue to keep you on depressants. That causes pneumonia, then they put the vent in, which makes it even worse, then you die. Once you get onto palliative care, they OD you on morphine and other other drugs with known interactions, and you die. This is what happens every single time. Everybody knows where it's going, but guess what? Instead of being prosecuted for murder, the hospital systems are given complete immunity, you can't even sue them for malpractice, and they get bonuses. They get bonuses for remdesivir. They get bonuses for CPAP, bonuses for uh, the vent, bon- bonuses, bonuses, bonuses for everyone that dies from COVID. Those bonuses are still in place in many cases. So don't think this is over. Now, Aaron had the courage to actually put this out. You would think that the mainstream media would be huge on this, that they would want to show this video. You would think that her doctors and nurses that she was working with who were forced to, to do things that they knew were killing patients would have celebrated her. But they were getting $10,000 a week or more. Did you get celebrated, Aaron?
1: No, gosh. If I would have stayed silent, you know, we had the parades that they were clapping for us at 7 p.m., which is like all part of the show. So it's like one one nurse goes against all the other nurses or doctors, you know, and then you're kind of (laughs) you're the scapegoat. Right. They can say you're crazy. You're this. You're that. Even though they all knew everybody knew what was going on. But, yeah, they they. they had a feeling they didn't know I was actually undercover. Uh, I was wearing spy glasses uh, during my time and I kind of got away with it and it was easy because we all had to wear eyewear. So I just called in my nerd alert glasses and everyone thought that was funny, but ultimately I was recording them, you know, and a couple times I, I recorded, um, you know, full codes, which is people that want to be saved and resuscitated with the doctors, you know, not allowing anyone to, to perform CPR and save their lives. And then they would write it that, you know, that, that was attempted. It everything was a lie. And like they, they suspected that I was not one of the, the good listeners there. So they had brought me, you know, um, they kicked me out of one of my patients rooms and brought me and told me i wasn't you know going to go back to work uh and ended up kicking me out when they did they unplugged every single ventilator in that entire hospital at elmhurst hospital and what that does when you unplug ventilators is reset the settings so they were like covering their tracks at the same time and i know this because right before i left we were all in a whatsapp chat it was like all the crucial staffing nurses and i pretty much sent them a nice old paragraph like you guys know you're murdering people this is gonna you know i just i was mad i'm still on a vengeance and i'm if anything i'm on more of a vengeance at this point because now we got more (laughs) people in support but uh there was a couple nurses that were in there and they continued uh, my undercover work. So that's one thing that the hospital is not aware of yet. <clears throat> but yeah they were they were having all the nurses and staff sign a- additional non-disclosures and you'll be persecuted, yada, yada, yada.
0: So yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, and I'm not trying to give anybody legal advice, but you might want to ask your local lawyer uh, how well a non-disclosure agreement stands up when it's being used to cover up a crime because typically they yeah. don't apply. Uh, you should also, you know, recognize that what Nurse Aaron just described there was in many states called felony murder mm-hmm. fraud that results in murder or death is, uh, you yeah, know, and that's that's as bad as it gets in, in many states. So I, I'm not saying that there ought to be some felony murder charges, but yes, I am. Um, so, so, you know, uh, we just got to ask ourselves if there's any prosecutors in the state of New York that uh have the gonads to actually put the safety and lives of the people of new york above their own uh their own Mm self-interest because i assure you you'll get attacked by the crooks in new york if you actually stand up for the people but you'd probably be a hero to the people um kim you you have a a pretty incredible story too let's let's kind of walk through you know where you started how you came into this
2: yeah so well thank you again for having me tom um So I started, I was an ICU nurse. I worked throughout the pandemic. um, And like Erin said, nothing made sense in the beginning. Uh, It seemed like every new policy that would come down the pike just kind of really flew in the face of everything we'd long known to be, you know, true and accurate in healthcare. And I've been in healthcare for 27 years. And, you know, it's starting with the N95 mask and wearing that same mask from our COVID patient room to our non-COVID patient room. You know, prior to the pandemic, um, infection control policy does not allow for anything like that to occur. So things like that just kind of had me questioning things. And, and like Aaron said, also, we were seeing people that were very sick, probably as I can recall back as early as September 2019. And it was just something that was very, very different um, about these patients. They were they were coming in. They were getting um <clears throat> and sicker despite all of our best efforts they just weren't getting any better and we were seeing them on vents for a lot longer than we would normally see typically it's like two or three days now we were seeing them on vents for like as much as a week at a time which that that doesn't happen they're always looking to trach them um long before that and then we're seeing settings that we're not used to like the peeps of 15 I mean, we were literally blowing people's lungs out Mm -hmm. and um so I started asking questions. I started becoming uncomfortable with the protocols that we were using in the hospital because they didn't make any sense. You know, they started using um, the, the remdesivir, right? Which if we know anything about remdesivir, it's an antiviral medication. So it relies on viral replication in order to be effective. Well, by the time that these patients were getting to us, because remember, they the media has them all so afraid to even breathe air that they're not coming to the hospital until the last minute. And then when they did come, we told them to go home and come back when they couldn't breathe. We weren't doing anything to mitigate the damage. We weren't the one of the most absurd things I had heard is that we were um, ibuprofen contraindicated in COVID patients. So we were doing nothing to mitigate the damage, and we've never done this before. Um, but we were just letting them, you know, go home, come back when you can't breathe, and you're a prime candidate for a ventilator. And by that point you know that we're putting them on the remdesivir and, it, and and like Karen said it's like that assembly line they come in they get that covid diagnosis is now a bounty on their head as soon as they walk through those doors and um they get brought up to the icu they get placed on the sedatives on the um um remdesivir and then it go you know it's it's just increasing and in, up to the ventilator so i it's, it's i saw the same thing over and over again remdesivir Ventilator death. That was, I mean, just wash, rinse, repeat, that was all I was seeing at the bedside. And again, going back to the remdesivir, you know, by the time that these patients were getting to us in the hospital, they're already well past their replication phase and several days into their symptomatic phase. So I started asking the question, why are we continuing to use this medication that is clearly doing more harm than good? We knew, <clears throat> if you go back to the 2008 Ebola trials, that 54% of those study participants died. I think if we had led with that information, many of those people wouldn't have been signing the consent for this EUA medication. Um, but even the WHO recommended it against its use because they had done massive global studies that showed uh, that it um, was ineffective and it had little to no impact on hospitalized patients. So why were we continuing to do this? And they're telling us that COVID is killing all of our patients. But it isn't COVID, because why weren't we pulling bodies off of the streets? Think about our homeless pop- population. Nobody's dying at home. The only place anyone was dying was in our hospitals. And I couldn't understand why people weren't asking why this was. Um, but we were, unfortunately, we we were, this was a hospital Holocaust. I don't know any other nice way to say it, you know, But and the, the system has used its well-intentioned nurses to really carry out this evil agenda. And unfortunately, I I thought more nurses were going to speak up. Like Aaron said, I thought when I I, uh, started speaking up and when I started Nurse Freedom Network, I expected all of these nurses to come on board. I started looking around saying, where is everybody? And nobody came. So for a long time, we didn't even know about each other. You know, there was a a few of us out there doing our own thing, Nicole, uh, Aaron, Jody, myself, and a few others, but we didn't. We hadn't connected with one another, and like you said earlier, it's a really lonely feeling um, to be out there and, and talking about these things. But I think that as nurses, overall as a profession, I think we could have done a whole lot more, and I think we could have put a stop to this very, very early on if in any large numbers we had stood up the moment that they told us our patients couldn't have an advocate at their side. We should have been standing up again, in large numbers and and saying, absolutely not. But I think that goes into play about how much fear uh, comes into play. And in these well, types of me, situations,
0: let me, uh, let me, you know, one of the things that, that we really got to be careful of is I want to make sure that people who have no medical understanding or knowledge whatsoever, understand some of the things that you're saying, mm-hmm. because this really has to be broken down for people who don't you don't need to have that understanding to understand that this was intentional. Yeah. So, you know, there's several things here. So first of all, when you talk about remdesivir and it being past the replication phase, uh, what people what I, what you need to understand and nurses, please tell me I'm an idiot. If I am, um, when you get a, when you get a virus, it gets to your body, it, it replicates for a while. Uh, you start getting sick. But the, the virus will quit replicating in your body and will start getting its way worked out. And you'll still have other issues to deal with, secondary infections, other things like that. And that's generally how uh, my doctors and nurses have taught me that the pathology of a disease will, will carry forward. Um, so you start out with a virus, the virus itself will run its course, but then you're left with whatever's left. And you know, part of uh, the way that modern medicine deals with this is they treat these secondary issues, right? So if you if you come down, if you've got symptoms of pneumonia, you know, they'll use steroids to keep your lungs open. Uh, you'll you'll, you know, it's the reason that you take a decongestion. It's the reason that you do these things. You, you minimize the symptoms while your body's dealing with the virus or whatever else. And what Kim just said there was this is what they do everywhere with everything, except for COVID. With COVID, they actually denied you treatment for the symptoms so that you felt worse and that you were sicker. And that just, I would say to my mind that that justified them going through this. Well, you're so sick, you need to get on the vent. You need to do this. You're going to die. And we know that they said this because when I had patients calling me from the hospital saying, you know, I told the doctor I don't want remdesivir and they actually screamed at me and said I was going to die, I was going to die. Uh, you know, th- this was an intentional thing. Now, there's two issues there. We had a couple good nurses like Kim and Aaron that were out there fighting, but we had a ton of them that didn't. The other issue we have is the nurses, you know, they can see that they, they are deviating from standards of cares that they've been living with for however many years, but it's the doctors who are implementing these standards of care. The nurses can argue with the doctor, but ultimately the doctor is going to make that decision. The doctor should know. How does the doctor not know? How do you argue that a doctor who's seeing 90-plus percent of his patients, and we have statistics that we've gotten from whistleblowers in the government that show this, if you have 90-plus percent of your patients who are ventilated dying, why would you ever say no to letting them try something like ivermectin or HCQ? Why would you say no to say, you know to standard treatments? Oh, you've got a pneumonia. Why don't we treat the symptoms of pneumonia like we would treat every other pneumonia? Yeah. Now, ladies, did you uh, did you see? And I'm saying this rhetorically because I know I saw from you know people who I've dealt with. Uh, did you see uh, where if someone would have pneumonia? They would say, well, it's COVID pneumonia, and they wouldn't treat it at all, even though you know I mean so, and many times they wouldn't even test to see whether it was a bacterial pneumonia. Which could have been cleared up with antibiotics. We saw that in a lot of places. Did, did either of you see
2: that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they weren't doing anything to mitigate the damage of of the virus, and that and that's what was happening is that they were coming in and they were getting again on that assembly line, um, and they were succumbing to secondary infections due to um, you know ventilator associated pneumonia, or um, you know we're leaving as Aaron said we're leaving them up in the in the bed. Um, you know, they're getting bed sores, they're getting infections from that. They're drowning in uh, their fluid. I mean, the, what was happening was that so, it was so egregious. This is the most egregious thing I'd ever seen in my 30, nearly 30 years in healthcare. It was that we were um, intubating these patients that did not need to be, they weren't in distress and I had one patient and as you alluded to earlier they were talking about you need to give you need to give your lungs a rest and i had a patient that was literally begging for the ventilator she was a little bit short of breath she probably could have benefited from some oxygen you know some support but she they had her literally begging for this because they she thought she was going to feel so much better and you know I, I keep thinking I just keep thinking back about that and it just horrifies me I can't get any of their faces out of my head any of them, these ones that I know that they didn't need to die, you know, they, they put them on these vents knowing that there was an 80 to 85% chance they weren't coming off of them. We were in a sense, we were essentially signing their death warrant when we did this. And again, it wasn't because they were in distress. They were not in respiratory failure. It was in an effort to contain the virus because that ventilator is a closed-loop system. The virus is no longer disseminated into the air, and it was being done at that point no longer about the patient in the bed. So I, I just could never understand why we were doing this. And for a virus we'd already been exposed to, and that's you know that's just nursing. That's healthcare. We're exposed to who knows what, and that's what we sign up for. So um, to see this happening over and over again, and I couldn't understand the doctors going along with it, and I would ask them, Why are we doing this? Why are we pushing for early intubation versus early treatment that we know is safe and effective? And they would just say the same answer over and over. It's protocol. And people don't understand these doctors. um, They are just paycheck employees, right? And these big corporate hospitals, they take their marching orders just like, you know, just like the rest of us. Um, Some of them take orders, well, better than others, I guess, because, you know, that's why I had to walk away. I I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't walk away these patients die.
0: Hey, the i'm a little less forgiving at this point because they did take an oath just like you yeah. ladies did and you ladies did right these guys sold out you guys took the abuse you guys took the hell you guys took the beating these guys kept collecting the big fat checks and got videos made of a bunch of idiots dancing in er while their patients are being murdered and uh you know just you know they got they got all the high fives for it you took all the abuse so my my uh compassion for these sellouts is not all that high at this point um, and the fact that it's still occurring is mind-blowing um can i
3: jump in on that point? please um yeah i got the statistics from yale public health just the other day 1500 people are dying every week quote of covid in hospitals yep. in the us yep and they're still getting paid off for it can i, can I throw in another thing just so people can understand this scene the doctors run the show and the nurses are there to assist the doctors and assist the patients and act as the advocates for the patients. So the doctors are the ones giving the orders. Uh, and, and, you know, in, under normal circumstances, you should be able to trust your, the doctor's orders. Uh, and, and nurses also exist to say, hey, doctor, you sure you want to give this person this drug again? Because you just gave it to them an hour ago. Right. And they go, oops, you're right. You know, mistakes happen. Uh, so the nurses were put in a really bad situation because they are not the ones running the show, uh, but they are the ones that have to execute on on the actual orders. Uh, it's like being a I'm not I don't want to use a military analogy and and, and mix things up, but it's like if you're let's say an an, uh, an enlisted person and the officer says take that hill, well. Under normal circumstances, you take the hill because he's the officer, and hopefully he's got the right intelligence. So, uh, initially, I think a lot of nurses were fooled, uh, but then they then some of them a lot unfortunately the majority of them persisted. Um, and it was, it was like, it was like being, I think it was like being in a battle and the Lieutenant goes, go oh, there and you're going, wait a minute, everyone that's gone there has died and, and it's getting us nowhere. And the Lieutenant says, keep going and just keep sending every other person into that, uh, into that certain death.
1: I'll, I'll speak on that a little bit, cause Great. just from a military perspective too, but also a nursing perspective, um, like nurses are the, the last line of defense between a patient and a body bag. And we do not have to follow bad orders. Absolutely not. And even in the military, if an officer is going to give me, which I was enlisted a bad order, and I know that it's a bad order, I can go up my chain of command. And that's what I did at Elmhurst hospital. I'm like, absolutely not. I will not do that. There was a, a point when I was literally blocking my room door. Like that was right around the time that they got rid of me. Cause they're like, Whoa, this girl's like, she's not following, you know, an order, but. You don't have to follow orders, especially bad orders. And like, that's why we have a chain of command. And I tried to use that and I know that others had, but the minute that you went up that chain of command is when they kicked you out. So either you had to like stay inside and say you were going to follow the orders and and not give them, you know, uh, an extended dose of sedatives that's just going to keep them tanked you know, or you could advocate like a lot of things that they weren't doing was just obtaining a simple sputum sample to see if they had a bacterial infection. Like all this stuff, like we, there was a lot of things that nurses could have done. Um, but they were too afraid and it's like, all right, well, what are you in this profession for? Are you, are you here to put your, your paycheck over patients' lives? And if you are, you're a horrible person And I don't know how you can sleep at night. I'm sorry. I'm like my gloves are off. Like I am like in fight mode. I have like I I have nothing to lose at this point. You know, they have taken away my career. I have my license. I've had to like rebuild my entire life, you know, with three boys. So I'm like like how how on earth are we going to be able to leave our world as it is for our children to fight it like this is our fight at this point and if we don't start with the healthcare system because that's where they start everything even Nazi Germany they used you know health as part of their control because like it's the easiest to induce fear so as long as like we can keep this going and not let people forget about what happened and bring justice to all those family members that were literally slaughtered for what, you know, like think about it. It could have been your family member and maybe it was like, get angry at this point, you know, like figure it out and try to fight it. That's my best advice.
0: Well, and I want to, I want to pause for a second and promote my sponsor, me. Get the book, What the Nurses Saw. Jen did a great job on this. Help us get the word out. Share Tom Wren's show on the America Out Loud Network, on Rumble, on Twitter, on X.
3: Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. And it is our chance to get it right and take back a free America. AmericaOutloud.news is your source for uncensored and factual news that facilitates truth and unity among all Americans to restore that American dream we have always cherished. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
0: It's an interesting thing because, you know, when you you ladies tell your stories, uh, mine was a little bit different. Um, I had a I had a lot of pictures sent to me uh, when people would be begging me to, to say, you know, because as the first lawyer out there doing this, and so people would be begging me to, you know, hey, you can, get us, you can get our loved ones ivermectin. You can get them out of the hospital. You can sue them. You can sue this. You can sue that. Well, the problem is, is you ladies know, the death protocol took between 9 and 16 days, depending on the state and the hospital. So from the time you got into the hospital to the time you came out in a body bag, was a maximum of about 16 days. Almost no one made it longer than that. And it was designed that way, right? I mean, we, we just talked about the escalating protocols, failure to treat, all these different things that they did. And then, and I'm gonna ask you ladies about this in a second, but I don't know if you saw any of the palliative care changes. But the, the thing is, is you know, I get all these calls. This is a new area of law and there was immunity built into some statutory stuff. And that being able to actually get a case structured, assuming that I was licensed in a state or had someone I could work through in any given state, get it into court and get something done in less than 16 days, it was almost impossible. It was almost impossible. We spent more time writing letters that were threats to sue and stand down things and anything and it was horrible because people would call me they okay what's their o2 levels how long have they been on the vent how long have they been on cpap what were their creatinine levels you know because i'm looking at you know were their were their kidneys totally destroyed were they starting to see system shut down so you know after after enough time i didn't have to be a doctor or a nurse to know that these are the same every single time so i get a call and we're you know you're nine eight nine days into the death protocol all i could say to the family member is i'm sorry i'm going to pray for your loved one but it's going to be in god's hand now and and this was horrible over and over so i can't imagine having to go in and look in the rooms and tell the parents that they can't say goodbye to their kids I mean, this is horrible on a level that people, I don't think people understand how horrific this really was. And these nurses who actually did wake up and knew what was happening, I mean, they were put into positions where they could either lose everything or they could they could uh, just stand aside and watch people murder. Now I know what the right thing to do is, but it's really a lot easier to say than to do. Um, Aaron, you mentioned that you uh, you faced some pretty solid repercussions, you know, professionally and everything else. You want to talk about that a little bit? The thanks that you got for all of the work that you did and for standing mm-hmm. up for your patients.
1: Yeah, not much. Um, I mean, I was fired from the my travel nursing position, and then. Um, My local hospital, Advent Health, actually, I don't, I haven't really said where I worked, but now I am these days. um, Voluntarily resigned me without my knowledge. And to this day, even with an attorney, I can't get that paperwork. So essentially they, they fired me, uh, but like kind of forged my signatures voluntarily. Um, They also fired the, the ceo that i was uh, speaking with not locally but it was like more of a national ceo um because when i did my undercover work the documentary uh i guess people had to verify everything that i was saying so they went all the way up to the ceo and then he also he was going to participate in another documentary with the same producers and um he was canned too so you know both of my jobs were you know cashed out. And then I'm also like on a do not hire blacklist, according to a, a travel nursing, a uh, friend of a friend who had looked me up, and there's literally a do not hire. Um, so I've had to essentially create my own employment. Um, but I will say that there has been absolutely zero sanctions or lawsuits against me. And I have my license and it's in good standing, a uh, multi state license at that. So, you know, what I did was the right thing to do. Uh, we're mandatory reporters. Anyone in the healthcare industry, uh, all the way to the janitor, all the way to the top CEO, mandatory reporters. If you see something, you don't say something, you can and will be held liable in a court of law. Maybe the Nuremberg two trials that hopefully we'll see, you know, before uh, our lives, you know, uh, are up. But ultimately, I mean, that's what people are afraid of happening to them. But I think that between Kim and I were perfect examples of perseverance. And like, when you do the right thing, God will bless you. And it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be damn worth it. Yeah. Amen.
0: Well, and uh, this was systemic. I mean, you know, just FYI, I mean, the the, the pressure from the political crew is to do this. You know, we're everywhere. And I'm going to ask, and um, Kim, I want to hear about the great big thank you note that I'm sure you got as well. Um, <laughs> but before I get to that thank you note, I also, I want to, I want to mention Aaron, you were were in Florida and then New York. Uh, Kim, what state were you in? Tennessee. Okay. Now, you guys have talked about the protocols and the things you saw, and they were pretty well identical, right? Yep. And I can attest that they were identical all over the country because I've been all over the place doing this. Mm. Isn't it peculiar that the same identical protocol was implemented in Every single major hospital system around the country, even though it's well known and well established that those protocols violated all sorts of standards of care. And no one said anything. No one noticed this. None of the medical review boards at any of these hospitals, when they looked at the protocol, said, hey, uh, you know, um, not treating someone for pneumonia might be a bad idea. Um, hey, uh, when we get to palliative care, you know, uh, ODing them on morphine and uh, you know using the, the drug cocktails that you're using—that's gonna that's gonna uh, uh, expedite death, which is you know murder. I mean, they have uh, they have review boards in the hospitals that decide when they put a protocol in place whether or not they're safe. That's their job is to look at this. Yeah. Someone overrode that. Who was that? Where did that order come from? And why? is the COVID committee not asking that question. Why is Brad Winstrup and, uh, and Jim Jordan, why are they not, and all these people, why aren't they asking that question? Why aren't they asking who put the nurses in these positions? Kim, what, yes. what, let's hear about the thank you you got for fighting for your patients. I, I mean, did you get a raise and a promotion, corner, corner office? <laughs>
2: (laughs) Definitely not. Um, But I didn't get fired. I will say that. I I ended up leaving bedside, you know, because I did become so uncomfortable. My heart was so burdened by everything that I was seeing. I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, So I did leave uh, the ICU and I, I wanted to start working from home. I actually got a job doing telephone triage nursing. And, you know, I figured that would be a good alternative for me. It would get me away from all of this depth and despair because I just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, And, you know, for a while it was a good alternative, but there again, I start becoming uncomfortable with there's protocols that they have us use. We actually had a, um, they had us encouraging vaccination for everyone, including children. And not only that, they had us, they tried to have us say that safe and effective period we would have no way of knowing that we had no long term safety data the short term data was alarming to say the very least so there was no way that i was going to do that but we actually had a scripted answer when somebody would call and say is you know should i get this vaccine should my child get this vaccine is it safe and we had a scripted answer that said yes the vaccine is safe period and you know i i had ended up being ex- i'm not vaccinated i had ended up being exempted due to being a work from home employee at the time but there was no way, this doesn't meet the standard for informed consent, so there was no way that I was going to go through with this, and I ended up resigning from my position. Um, be, there was just, you know, it wasn't an easy choice to make. I certainly didn't have the financial provisions to do that as a nurse, but um, it was a clear choice because, how, like Erin said, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night encouraging this vaccine that, you know, I've seen injuring and, and killing millions of people? I don't know how people can put a paycheck over human life, you know? And I, it was a very uncertain uh, thing to do, but it didn't take me very long to do it. I just kind of made the decision. I felt very called to do it. And I said, no more, I can't, I can't do it. I, I resigned my position and I just kind of continued on. That was a little over two years ago. And I have no, I'm the, the same. I can't get a job anywhere. I couldn't even get a job in a laser hair removal clinic. <laughs> so, well, <I laughs> Too mean, controversial of a figure. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, clearly clearly, it's very controversial for a nurse to actually care about keeping the patients alive and to advocate for them. I mean, that's obviously yeah. a terrible thing in today's society. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet none of our politicians will talk about it. Yeah. Name one. Name one. Name one who's talking about this, right? Who's talking about this. Uh, have either of you been asked to testify in Congress? Mm-mm, no. Have either of you had any phone calls from uh, the COVID anyone on the COVID committee asking for your experiences?
1: No. Not not one. Mm-mm.
0: Okay. How about how about any states? Have any states asked you to come and testify?
2: No, not the state itself. Like I went to I went to Mississippi with uh, John Witcher and and we went to the um, yep. the Senate there, but officially from that state Senate, no, not at yeah. all.
0: Why are you know the only thing more cowardly than the than uh, the doctors are the politicians who won't even ask the question about it? They won't ask about why your loved ones were murdered. Now I wanna I wanna uh, do two things. So first of all, I'm gonna ask each of you to give me one example, just a very quick example of of one of the worst things that you saw, because I want people to hear. I can't reiterate how awful. This was I've got my personal baggage. I've talked about some of my stories. Um, I want to hear that. And then I want to move on because we're, we're getting towards the end of the show. I want to move on to, to some some positive. You know, what are you doing? Uh, what are you doing now? What's good? What's what's coming? You know what? What's happened since then? But let's start out. Let's start with the bad and then move to the good uh, Kim, what you got, what, what's terrible? I mean, I I want people to understand the true horror of what you guys had to see.
2: Yeah. And again, it it goes back to, um, the, the unnecessary intubation of these patients, you know, that, that, that unnecessary, um, medical interventions that we were performing on these patients when they did not need it. And knowing again, that we were, we were essentially signing their death warrant. Um, that was probably the most difficult thing for me, um, was watching these patients again die and knowing, knowing that there's safe, effective treatment available out there, um, that was, that was the most horrific part.
0: I'm gonna. I see a comment that came in that I wanna, I wanna just acknowledge us. So, uh, Binger Singer, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I apologize that I couldn't help you. I assure you that if there was anything I could have did, I would have did it. I spent years uh, getting pushed and as and pulled in as many directions as I could, and I don't know if people understand this, but when uh, I'm one dude, you're one nurse. You got a whole hospital. You got a whole this. You got a whole that, Um, and uh, uh, you know, banger. I know. I know. I know. ProMedica is in my hometown. I know where it's at. I know. I know that I was also dealing with places where there were hundreds or thousands of people dealing with the same thing. And I know a lot of good people lost their jobs. And I'm sorry that couldn't help you. And I'm sorry for all the other people I couldn't help. Um, I was as overwhelmed as could be. I'm still overwhelmed. I'm still trying to do as much as I can. And uh, you got to understand that when you're in this position, one lawsuit can take up, it, it can literally take up an attorney dealing with a major suit on a major issue like this can easily get to where they're t- putting full time plus into one or two suits and not be able to do any more and the problem that i faced so frequently was how do you how do you pick and choose which one you're gonna fix, which one you're gonna go after, you know, which one are you gonna work with other attorneys, which one are you gonna work with yourself, which one are you gonna manage? And that's the problem, right? The other problem was is that we didn't have the resources. So when you ladies moved into the advocacy role, because that's where you, you did move into, right? You two have been speaking out and advocating. How many times did you guys did you guys know that well we could do this, we could do that, but there's no funding for it. We can't hire a PR firm. We can't hire a marketing firm. We can't hire other attorneys. We can't hire paralegals. We can't hire all these people. I, I, you know, I will tell you up front to anybody that wants to ask, it has been hell. And I am sorry, Binger a singer, uh, that I, you know, that I was unable to get to you. And, uh, you know, it, you and a, you and a million other people that I was unable to, to help. Uh, hey, Tom, I apologize for that. Tom, can I give an analogy?
3: Yeah. Right? So you've got a swarm of tanks coming at you, and, yep. you, give, and you give a guy a rifle and say, yep. "Your job is to stop this." It can't be done. No right and 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 i hope everybody you know we're talking with doers on this call not theoreticians not podcasters right we're talking or or book authors we're talking about people that are we're actually literally in the trenches facing not insane odds impossible odds and and everybody and tom and and the two nurses did what they could with what they had and did way more
0: than you can even imagine so i just want everybody to keep that in mind Well, we did and one of the things that i think that you got to recognize is there was no instruction manual for this. I mean, we've got Nurse Aaron, she's a nurse, traveling nurse, doing this doing that, you know, volunteering, trying to help because it's a good option. We got Kim who's seen what's happening in her role as a nurse, and is trying to do what she can to, you know, to push this and push it. Um, I was not in this type of law. This isn't my field. It's not my background. I've had to learn this all. I have studied endlessly. You know, we've got all of these guys, all these people that were put together. None of us were the people that you would pick for this. All of us were just the only ones willing to take up, air, take up our, our rifles and fight. So by the way, the, so the radio show is going to be ending in just a minute, so let me plug the America Out Loud Network and the Tom Renz Show. Please share, please go to TomRenz.com. Please get this out everywhere. Um, for anybody watching on the podcast, we're going to keep going for a few more minutes because I think we need to do that. Um, and you can find that on Rumble, you can find that on Twitter, you can find that in a bunch of places. Uh, com. but we we that were fighting this, I mean, it's not like you went out and found the best uh, attorney on the planet with the most experience in vaccine and health law. It's not like uh, you know these uh, like like Aaron was going to work every day thinking, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna become a, a national leader in a nurse movement. Mm. Um, none of us expected this. None of us knew what we were doing. We had no clue. We were just the only ones willing to fight. And uh, we, we, I will tell you, um, and producer Andrea can attest to this because she's heard me gripe about it. And the people who are close to me have heard me gripe about it. Mm-hmm. To this day, there is a lot of regret that we live with. I, I, ladies, you probably, I, I'll ask you. I mean, do you feel it? I mean, I, I feel so much regret that I couldn't do more.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every uh, day. I,
1: I can contest to that because um, I don't think people understand that we're just people and um, and I can't get back to anyone either. And, and it's tough because you want to. And actually, True. you know, when I got kicked out, I went right to advocating. I was up all night, every single night. Honestly, I had to take a little break just recently for the last like six months. I've, I had to step back. Cause like I was, I got so skinny, too. I just I mean, like, literally, I wasn't even taking care of myself anymore. And I, I I was like, I'm raising three boys. And like, now they're getting bigger. I'm like, man, I'm missing out, too. So it's like, it's hard to find that even balance because we're at war right now. But at the same time, we have to put our oxygen masks on first, too. And like, I think that, you know, I, and I understand that comment, you know, from her. But at the same time, maybe, maybe we need more attorneys to get involved and maybe that's a good sign of that. And maybe we need more nurses and and more voices and we need help. Like how can we fund this? You know, I don't, I I mean, we're stretched, you know, and and it's difficult and we're at the, we're we're literally on the front lines of it. it and it's tough. And I don't think people truly grasp that, you know, the, the feelings that we have, you know, just constant, exhaustion yeah it's heavy on the soul and literally.
0: disappointment yeah. disappointment don't you, you i mean i'll speak for myself but i always you know to this day i still get calls that i can't get to
2: mm-hmm.
0: hey you know my loved one's in the hospital with covid i didn't even know they were still murdering people can you help and i'll i'll still to this day not be able to get to it and there's not one of those that goes by that doesn't break my heart, mm-hmm. not one, because every single time I know that someone's brother, sister, mother, uncle, cousin, who is loved, who's got a whole life. And and like I said, when I was a kid, I was a fireman. I know when you pull one person out of the building, you save that person's world, right? And it's family and all this, and other. I get that. You know, but somehow and somewhere along the line, especially those that have to, of us that are advocating now on a high level, it's like, did I go here and try and save a thousand, or do I go here and maybe save one? And you have mm-hmm. to pick, and it's it's a brutal, horrible thing because I don't feel good about it ever. You never feel good about it. You just know that you just know that you're a soldier. Mm-hmm. Your job is to be on the battlefield. Your job is to go towards the enemy and take it out and do whatever you gotta do. And you know, your brothers and sisters standing next to you, some of them are gonna fall on the way and some of them aren't. But if you don't get to that enemy, if you don't take that enemy out, it's gonna be a hell of a lot worse. So I I will openly and without hesitation to apologize to anyone who I was unable to assist or to save, and I'll just tell you, I'll feel worse about it for the rest of my life than you'll ever know. You just got to have the courage to do it. So please do everything you can, do something, do anything. Support the Tom Renz Show, Tomrenscom Share us on the America Out Loud Network and elsewhere. Help us fight.